you take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Malachi. We're going to start looking at the very end of that. If you've been reading through the Bible together with us, some of you are on a one-year, some are on a two-year, just going through the Scriptures together. It's really a great uh, encouragement to be able to talk to one another, like, what have you been reading? What's the Lord been uh, revealing about yourself? What's He been showing you? And if you've been reading, you have come across a character I want to talk about today, John the Baptizer. And I just want to talk about his life. In fact, if you know much about his life, it's in all of the Gospels. And I want to just take some time to really introduce him. And hopefully it will whet your appetite to look further into his life and how God used him in a miraculous way. Before we get there, you have to kind of know the book of Malachi. Here it is, the last letter in the Old Testament. And by the time this is written, written many things have happened. The exiles have come back to their homeland. Uh, the word of God's been lifted up because of Ezra has come and helped the people to be really revived. They've repented. The word of God is now where it should be. Uh, as Pastor Marty's preaching through the book of Nehemiah, the walls are going to be rebuilt. And while time Malachi is written, the walls have been rebuilt. But a sad thing has happened. As you've re read through the Old Testament, you realize this, that the people, they come back to God and then they fall away and then they repent and they come back to God. And it's just kind of a deal over and over again. And if you're like me, I've caught myself going like, when will they ever learn the lesson? And then I have to think about myself. I'm just like them. Like I, I get revived and yet then I take things of God lightly and I begin to drift away and I have to realize I must repent again. And here at the end of the book of Malachi, if you will, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Malachi says, The last thing that is said in the Old Testament, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then something happens that a lot of people don't realize. That between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is 400 years of silence. There's no more prophets. There's no more word of God. It is absolutely silent. No word from God from there. But you have to realize, even though there was no word from God, God was still at work. He, they might not have been able to hear his voice through a prophet, but his hand was still at work putting things in place. I, I hope just to remind maybe some of you this morning, if you feel like you're in this 400 years of silence, the deal is you and I have his word. You might think he's silent because maybe some of your prayers are still not answered, like you've been praying a long time. And for you, it feels like God is silent because you have not heard from him, like the answers you're looking for. You've been praying a long time, but yet you haven't heard or seen any evidence. So you might think, but I hope you'll realize that the hand of God is still very much at work in your life. He is very much at work ahead of you, putting things in place. 
And maybe people didn't realize it then, and the truth is we're no different than them. We can think that God's not doing anything, yet he is absolutely at work on you and I's behalf. It might feel like silence, but it is not. I want you, if you will, take a hard right from Malachi and go to the book of Luke. Even though Matthew has introduced us to John the Baptist, I'd like to begin before he comes on the scene with his parents. In Luke chapter 1, I want to start in verse 5. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. You've probably read this over and over again. I hope you'll hear it anew today. I have nothing new to say because there's nothing new. I just hope to remind you of some things. That in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And you have to realize he's just one priest out of about 18,000 priests. He's just in his village doing his priestly duties. In fact, some of your versions say there was a certain priest Meaning, he's just an ordinary guy, like vanilla ice cream, you know. He's just like one of 18,000, nothing really special about him. And it says there, there was a pre, his name is Zechariah, and the division of Badjai. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So just think about these folks for just a moment. For 400 years, God's been silent. And yet, Zechariah and his wife have continually been faithful to what they knew God wanted. They had what? Scripture they had. And even though God's been silent for 400 years, they're still believing that God is at work and he is doing things. And yet all this time in the midst of this, it says that Elizabeth is barren, which back then and even today can be an incredible hardship. I can understand. I, I realize. But back then, people would go, you must be cursed of God since you cannot have children and so Elizabeth and Zechariah would live with this all these days. And it says that now what? They're both older folks. And it's past the time of them ever having children. And yet they have remained faithful to God in the midst of all the silence. And just in the midst of all this, verse 8 says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. In other words, out of 18,000 priests, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It may never happen to some of these priests. But just by chance, right? You and I don't believe in chance, right? But just by chance, this guy, Zechariah, it fell on him that he would go in and do this duty. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel. 500 years ago was the last time an angel appeared to anybody. And so here he goes into the temple and an angel appears to him of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, and I, I want you to note this, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent here to speak to you and to bring you good news. And behold, in other words, I want you to take notice of this. You're going to be silent. You're going to be dumb. You're not going to be able to speak and utter a word until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my word. In other words, it sounds like Gabriel's a little ticked off. Like, how dare you question me? I'm from, I came from God to bring you this news. And by the way, I'm just going to shut you up for a while. In other words, for nine months, he's not going to be able to speak. And I want you to take note, if you underline your Bible, you might just underline this, because he finishes the sentence with, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after this days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for four months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Do you kind of see the picture? They've been living godly lives. They've been walking before God blamelessly. Elizabeth has been barren all this time. People have probably made comments to her. She probably has begun to believe, I'm cursed of God. I've done something that I cannot have children. And we're both old and we cannot have children. And then just look back at verse 13. Remember what the angel said? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you should call his name John. So I have a couple questions for you. Just answer them to yourself. Maybe write it down. How long have they been praying? How long have they been praying? I mean, it doesn't say here. Just think about it. You know, they, they get married and they're thinking about having a family. They're attempting to have a family and time goes by and nothing's happening. And not just months, but then years go by. And then years go by. And now they're advanced in years and they realize that time of life is over. And they've been praying for a long, long time in vain. Right? It seems like it, right? Seems like they've been praying all these years in vain. 
You can imagine if you've ever been in that situation, by the way, every one of you have. You've been in the situation where you've prayed a long, long time and you don't see it. And you know how it goes. You start questioning, first of all, yourself, like, have I done something wrong? Um, am I not right with God? Am I not praying right? Am I not praying long enough? And then you know what happens. Then you stop questioning yourself. And then you start questioning who? God. You start questioning like, was he not listening? Am I not that important enough? Am, is God just overlooking? Has he got more things to do? I don't know if you've ever heard that or if you've ever thought that, but like, you know, there's 7 billion people in the world. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff to do, a universe to run, and my measly little prayers really don't matter. Like, he doesn't listen. Here's another question. When did God first hear their prayers? Like, is there a time, like, you got to pray for so long until God hears you? Some people believe that. Or like you've got to come up with the right prayer. You remember the Pharisees, they had the right prayers, the flowery words, the long prayers. You've got to like pray over and over and, and so forth. Why the delay? Why such a long delay? Why is that? I want you to read this with me. In fact, this passage is one I go to often. When I try to figure things out, which is pretty much most of the time, and when I come up with uh, not the answer, which is pretty much every time, I have to go to verses. So read this out loud with me, would you? This is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the truth is, whatever purposes you and I have, God always has a higher purpose. Like we think, man, this is the purpose, yet God has a higher purpose. And he is always on time. In fact, most of you in this room know this. You've experienced this. You've prayed and prayed and prayed. And yet, whenever the answer came, you realize God was not late. He was just on time. Some of you are still in that area. You're still praying and you haven't seen it. What do you do? Like, do you just keep on praying? Do you keep on being faithful? Do you keep on being godly? The truth is, Zacharias and Elizabeth were what? They remained godly. They remained believing in God. They remained in praying without ceasing. They continued to believe God. In fact, they remained faithful in 400 years of silence. They remained faithful because they realized God was faithful in the midst of all that. If you will, go down to verse 80, the last verse of that chapter because it tells us about after John was born that the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness. He was in a private place. He was in a wilderness until the day of his public appearance. He stayed in the wilderness. Obscurity 
until the day called him, day God called him to come out and do what he called him to do. In fact, would you look over in your quotes? There's a quote from Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders, and it says this, It is the mark of a grown man as compared to a naive youth that he finds his center of gravity wherever he happens to be at the moment. And however much he longs for the object of his desire, it cannot prevent him from staying at his post and doing his duty. In other words, when you don't know what to do, what do you do? You remain faithful. Because God is what? He is absolutely faithful. Take a ride, if you will, and go to John, John chapter 1. We see John again. And in John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about that light. Now take your finger and go all the way down to verse 19. We pick up John again, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, the priests and the Levites, they are disturbed because John is baptizing and he doesn't have the right credentials. I mean, he's a wild man living in the wilderness he wears camel hair and leather belt, probably was out of style at that time. Ate locusts, put a little honey to take the bitterness out. I don't know if you've ever ate a locust. Honey helps it to be a little bit sweeter, just to let you know. The Jews were disturbed. I mean, John is baptizing. See, Jewish baptism was supposed to be administered by a priest. It was supposed to be done in the temple in some pure water. And yet here's a wild man in the wilderness and he is baptizing people in the Jordan River. What they're wanting to know is who gave you this authority to do such a thing? In verse 26, and he answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Do you know what he just said there? A servant, the lowest servant of the house, when you had a guest come over, would do what? They would take your sandals off and wash your feet. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Turn over, if you will, to chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Eon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and, a Jew, and the Jews over purification. And they came to John they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You kind of wonder, like, were they asking to make him jealous, to take his focus, to put more focus on him, to get him unraveled? But John answered, a person can receive even one thing. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves, you bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. And for he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, just a moment for John. I want you to look, if you will, over again in the quotes. There's a few quotes I've taken from a book called Ordering Your Private World. There's a section called Living as a Called Person. I want to walk through that with you for just a bit. First point, called people. Know exactly who they are. If you have a pen, I want you to underline a, a line here. Knowing who you are not is the beginning of knowing who you are. I'd like for you to underline that. The first thing to know who you are is, first of all, know who you're not. They have an increasing ability to separate the role from the person. A cold person. And not that women don't need to hear this, but men, I'd really like for you to perk up and listen. 
Because a cold person has an increasing ability to separate role from person. And just from a guy to guys, you and I have trouble with that often. Because our role as a man in this world often is something that we put high, high, high up. And not that it's bad, but the truth is, whatever you and I's role is, our title, our position, pecking order, kind of an old way of saying it, whatever that thing that you might be living for, the role, the danger is it can be taken away from us. Your position at your work, your position in life, it can diminish, taken away from you. It can disappear. It can change. It can mess with you if you don't watch out. If you're living for the role you play in life, it can diminish. But here's the other part of it, is person. Person is who you are. I hope you hear this. Both men and women. Person means, who am I? And if you are a follower of Jesus, the truth is, you're what? You're a child of God. Your role can diminish and be taken away from you. Who you are as a child of God cannot be taken away from you. Be sure you have your heart and mind and focus on the right one. Because this will change. And a person, especially a man, who has his focus on this, when it changes, your whole life can be a roller coaster and take a huge dive. I've been there. Deal is, you and I must focus on person. Who are we? Whose are we? If you're a child of God, it cannot be taken away from you. Do you remember disciples came back? Jesus had given them all this incredible ability, and they said they were casting out demons and doing all these works. And what did Jesus say to them? Don't rejoice in these things, because what? That was a role at that time. But you should rejoice in what? That your name is what? Written in the book of life. Because what? That cannot be taken from you. So, the next one there under the quotes there. A called person possesses an unwavering sense of purpose. The best man has fulfilled his purpose when he draws no attention to himself but focuses all attention upon the bridegroom. Hey, you ever been to a wedding and it was the best man who was doing all the funny stuff trying to get everybody's attention? Have you ever done that? No. Because you'd be the first one to run up and tackle him. If the bride, or if the bride, yeah, if the bride didn't first, or if the groom. The best man isn't there to call attention to himself. He is there what? To call attention to the bride and to the uh, groom. And John knew that that's what he was. He was the best man. And he was just to call attention to the bride and the groom. The other part of the quote is called people understand unswaying commitment. Called people experience peace and joy. When others thought that John might be worried about ending up as a failure, they discovered that he actually was quite satisfied in spite of the fact that his audiences were leaving him. In fact, I want you to look again with me, starting in verse 27. 
Because you remember what John said? A person can receive, cannot receive, even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Do you realize you and I have not received one thing unless it was given to us? You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John. Honestly, that's you and I. Who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This is why he called me to. He must increase. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. I want you, if you will, go to Luke chapter 7. While you're turning there, John has now been put in prison. John wasn't afraid to call out sin, and this is the reason why he's in prison. And now he's in prison, and Luke gives an account while he's in prison in verse chapter 7, starting in verse 18, if you will. The disciples of John reported all these things to John. They came to John. They were reporting to him that, hey, Jesus is doing all these things. And John, calling two of the disciples, said, I want you to go to the Lord and ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look or expect another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us, saying, Are you the one that is to come, or shall we um, look or expect another one? Are, are, are you him, or are we... Should we keep looking? Are we, should we expect somebody else? So just think. Here John has been faithful all this time. And now he winds up in prison. And it's like you've been there and I have too. It's like things didn't turn out as expected. Is anybody in this room, could you say, things just didn't turn out as I expected? Every one of us. There's things in your life that you have said, they just have not turned out as I expected. John, he's the same way. I was expecting maybe something different to happen. I was expecting Jesus to come and just war in here and take over, but things aren't quite like I expected. But here's, here's another one that I know I have fallen into, and maybe you have too, is that, his faithful service did not really line up with what he was experiencing. Like, I know none of us would like be so bold to say this, but maybe in your heart and mind, I've said it. I've been faithful, Lord, and yet what's going on in my life doesn't match up. Well, first of all, did God ever say that in the Bible? that your faithfulness will line up with a good life. Does it say that? You know what it says? You and I be faithful. It's probably going to be... Probably? Is that a word that you find? 
The truth is, Scripture says what? You and I be godly, faithful, live as a follower of Christ, and life on earth is going to be what? Difficult. And yet we forget that. I think John probably forgot that for a minute. In fact, if you'll look for a minute, I just want to encourage you with something maybe you've read before or not. But there is a book that's been around for a long, long time called Pilgrim's Progress. Has anyone read this before? Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, a few of you. If you haven't, I'd encourage you. A guy named John Bunyan wrote this. John Bunyan was a a poor, poor, poor man. And he preached, though. And he preached and preached and preached. And he wrote this. I'll tell you why he wrote it in a moment. But in this book, he tells a story. And Christian is the main character. And he had a friend named Hopeful. And Christian and Hopeful, they are walking along and they fall asleep in a field. And the field belonged to the giant despair. The giant despair captured them and took them to his castle and put them in the dungeon called the Dungeon of Doubting Castle. While they were in the dungeon, they were trying to figure out what they should do. And in the midst of them talking, Christian says something. He says, I remember I have a key in my bosom pocket. In other words, in my heart, I have a key. It's called promise. And I believe that this key will unlock every door in Doubting Castle. And sure enough, they used the key. It led them out of the Doubting Castle and to the King's Highway. A lot of parallels, right? To the Scriptures. I don't know if you know the background of Pilgrim's Progress, but John Bunyan would not stop preaching. And finally... The leaders of the town came to him and says, unless you stop preaching, we'll throw you in prison. They threw him in prison because he would not stop preaching. And yet he would go out every day into the prison yard and preach. And people of the town would come and listen outside the walls of the prison to John Bunyan preaching. And they couldn't get him to shut up. And they finally said, if you do not stop preaching in the prison yard, we'll put you in the dungeon. They put him in the dungeon, and John gave up, and that's all we know of him. Nope. John Bunyan, while he was in the dungeon, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, more people have heard John preach than any other time because in a dungeon, God used him in an incredible way. Back, if you will, to verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people, diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed their sight. And he answered, that is, to John's disciples, I want you to go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And the blind, they receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead they're raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended at me. Do you know what Jesus was telling the disciples of John to go back and tell him? John would know exactly. When they started saying these words, they were quoting Isaiah. Because Isaiah actually said that the Messiah would come and he would be healing the blind and raising the dead and preaching the good news to the poor. In other words, Jesus said, go back and remind John of what the scriptures say about me. 
In verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and living in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I want you to turn there, but I just want to show you this passage in John. By this time of this passage, John has been beheaded. Jesus did not go and rescue John from prison. He was beheaded. So John picks it up and he says, And he went away again, this is Jesus, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. I don't know if you've ever, as you're reading through the scriptures, if that like perked your attention. John, some of your translations said, John did no miracles. Just think about it. You think of the Old Testament. Elijah raises people from the dead, calls fire from heaven, no rain for so many years. Moses, all these plagues, parts the Red Sea, Men in the wilderness, all these incredible miracles. And yet John comes along and he does no miracle. And yet Jesus says about him what? He's the greatest man who's ever been born. Isn't that amazing? Like why? Why would he say he's the greatest ever to be born? finish the passage it says this but everything that John said about this man Jesus it was true in other words more than miracles the truth being spoken about Jesus was a more powerful thing than the miracles and then Jesus said what I tell you among those born of women none or like John, greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, John's unique greatness in his God-given role in human history was like there's nobody else. But hear me, not his spiritual inheritance. Does that make sense? The role that God called John to, no one else was like him. But why the last words that Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, it's kind of back to the role in person. Like John, his role diminished. It ultimately was taken away, and it came to an end. But like John and you and I, who am I? A child of God, which cannot be taken away. 
that can only be accomplished by the life of Jesus Christ living a perfect, sinless life for you and I. It can only be accomplished that he would take you and I's place and die that he might satisfy the wrath of God against you and I, that he would take that. And that he would be buried. And that he would rise again. And he would offer such a thing. Uh, My last question. Are you a child of God? Like your role will diminish. It will. But what will not be diminished or will not be taken away, your health can be taken away from you. Your job can be taken away. Your dreams, some of them can just come to an end. And yet there is one thing that is for sure that can never be taken away, and that is if you're a child of God. It can never be diminished or taken away. My question is, In the midst of all that we've heard, are you a child of God?